it's it's a typical bank holiday today. It's all been dreary. Yes, it's chucking it down here. It's kind of just eased off, but it's been bucketing down with rain. So yes, I, I managed to catch up with Sabal this morning. And, oh right, okay. But what an enjoyable load of nonsense. Uh, yes, yeah. Yes, when we come to that. Um, interestingly enough, Sibau was written by Terry Nation. Yes, yeah. He's on, he's on the bounce, isn't he? It certainly is. The Golden Frog, which we're also going to discuss, and The Frightened Innkeeper were written by other people. Though, as we've discussed previously, they might share certain similarities with previous episodes. Mm. Um, but there are some certain textual similarities between scenes in Sabao and in The Inescapable Word and The Sign of the Claw. And I will draw your attention to those if you haven't already oh, right, spotted okay. them. Shared elements. Shared elements. I am going to use this opportunity, I thought, rather than distract us from talking about Sabao in detail, but I am convinced that Terry Nation invented artificial intelligence because AI is meant to be able to write scripts in the style of. And I think, yes. I think Terry Nation basically created artificial intelligence in order to help with his work rate. <laughs> Quite often you, you would see and read um, very harsh criticism of film or TV series, and, and, and it would usually be this has been written by as if it's been fed through a computer. And certain elements have been have been taken out of that. But now that seems to be maybe the way ahead. Possibly, which means that we're out of a job. But would you get a podcast as idiosyncratic and arcane as this one created by artificial intelligence? Oh, I don't know. I'd, I'd certainly like to meet that artificial intelligence that's, that came up with it and wonder whether it wears glasses. <laughs> Um, well, we shall see. Right. Welcome to Rose Tinted Black and White Television, uh, the review show. This is the second one that we've recorded in fairly short order because I explained about the coronation and we were embargoed by His Majesty's government from doing anything before then. Rose Tinted Black and White Television is the show where we look at the television that flickered across the UK screens between 1956, the Suez Crisis, and 1974, the three-day week. A lot of it was in black and white, certainly seen in black and white, because not many people had colour televisions. You had to be minted to have a colour television. You also needed a very large room, because it would take up at least two-thirds of it. But we are watching Series 3 of The Saint on Talking Pictures TV. That is in black and white, and... We have another three episodes for you because it's a bumper bank holiday edition. We're recording this on May the 8th, 2023. And we will be talking about The Golden Frog, The Frightened Innkeeper and Sibau, which is how they pronounce it. Mm, yes. Yeah. We can only go with local knowledge. And there seems to be quite a lot of local knowledge in that. We shall come to it, but uh, it's amazing. I didn't know Time Life did books on voodoo. Andy, nice to know. The saint obviously nipped down to the local library and uh, plucked that one out. Anyway, we're in South America for the Golden Frog. And the saint arrives on a Pan Am flight, which is quite interesting, wearing a buttonhole. So we've got the usual airport chat 
Take it away, Dave. Yes, so it's south of the border disorder. We are down in in South America and he arrives and immediately appears to draw attention of a very suspicious looking person in one of those like white linen-y suits who uh, um, kind of occupy a lot of these countries. Um, And the idea is, you know, is he expecting or does he know a character called the general? Is he is Simon Temper come down to South America? to meet the general Um, and it turns out no he's not although he is mistaken as being maybe the contact of the sweaty man in the linen suit no what simon's actually down there is to meet up with an old friend of his fergus who runs a place called the crown and heather pub now this kind of reminded me of those places that we know of that exist in spain at the moment where you can get like a big breakfast a sunday lunch and there's endless editions of Only Fools and Horses played on the TV, and it's about 38 degrees. I think Fergus serves haggis. Yes, Fergus is attempting to be entertaining for British expats in the district, but it appears that Fergus has been victim of a scam, and the scam is run by um, a father and daughter double act who claim to be searching for these mythical golden frogs of um, the Amazon or or certainly the upper reaches of of some mythical sounding river. Like the Thames. Yeah, people invest in this scheme. They are promised a golden frog and very rarely does the golden frog turn up. But um, as well as Simon getting implicated in that, in his favourite disguise, as Sebastian Tombs, it appears that the Generale also wants to enlist the aid of these two con artists who suddenly realise they're a little bit out of their debt because they are no longer just going upriver to fleece some tourists out of their cash with golden frogs. No, they're being asked to act as gun runners. And then a whole plot uh, unravels. Um, where there's real guns, there's fake guns, there is uh, Rog doing an accent, no accent as Sebastian Tombs. There are some natives acting up, but they're being paid to act up, so that's all good. Um, Obviously, Rog has it set on the fact that, despite all these ongoing shenanigans, that his friend Fergus will recoup his initial investment. And kind of ends all smiles again doesn't it apart from the very sinister murderous vargas yes yeah who may Um, well have ended up as breakfast for a crocodile yes there there is this idea that maybe there are these deadly indigenous tribes up there that maybe um it's alleged that they're they're headhunters or worse still headhunters and then head shrinkers but it appears that the nesters jacqueline ellis and hugh mcdermott have some of the indigenous tribe in their pay to act the role of these headhunters. So maybe there's kind of like no direct threat there, but there certainly is the threat, like you said, of the the gunrunners. So there is a little bit of an element of danger in there, but it is one of those marvellous long con episodes where one time one character appears to have the upper hand and Simon has back the upper hand and it's kind of like rest assured that Simon's got all this laid out as to how it's going to work out. Because don't forget, this is his bread and butter. Yeah. In fact, we've seen him doing a lot of times before with an alleged familial. Originally, you know, I think it was um, Ed Bishop 
where it was, was it brother and sister? But they turn out to be husband and wife. And they're flogging a load of illegal guns to some South American types. That was the revolution racket. And Mm. fortunately, in the Golden Frog, the coup plotters are even more incompetent than the ones in the revolution racket. We are told, though, that these men, by Colonel Quintana of the National Security Police, who actually has fallen asleep on Simon's bed in his room and also needs his socks darning. Yes. That uh, these men are very, very dangerous. They are killers, etc. And we've had very little evidence of that. To come. Yes, I mean, there's, there's a lovely running gag um, where um, one of the villains, each time they're in Simon's company, um, particularly in his room, and there's a bit of rough and tumble, um, he invariably loses a sleeve to his jacket um, and each time he has to report back to his his superior, it usually ends on the line, go buy yourself a sleeve, <laughs> which sounds like it may be underworld cant for something. I don't know whether it is. Go buy yourself a sleeve. But to be fair, the, the general does decide that maybe two blockheads are better than one. Mm. I'm not quite sure whether he was right about that. But... <laughs> There we have, finally, the swindlers, basically, they go into retirement because they're not very good at it. You know, they've, they've kind of been lucky and, and playing on the stupidity of others. And in this, where they, they get way out of their debt because there's, you know, gun smuggling isn't their, their kind of thing. But they believe that they can fleece um, Sebastian Toons. And, yeah, they realise that maybe... It's best to turn in their job. It's it's not going well. You know what? They've learned their lesson. That's what it is. Learned their lesson. Now, it's South America, so obviously there's a lot of work given to natives for to use uh, the terminology of the time, the saint, except they're not natives of South America, as far as I can tell. No. Uh, eagle-eyed amongst you may be able to spot Dino Shafiq. In an uncredited role, Dino Shafiq, who uh, I suppose talking the other episode about um, Bert Quok, and Dino Shafiq would be one of those very familiar British Asiatic actors, mind your language, amongst other things, but had a, a very good career. Yeah, yeah. Tragically, I mean, not sure. That's right. He, he dies relatively young, which is a great shame. Um, his career had its heyday in the late 70s. He had 29 episodes of Mind Your Language, and 56 of It Ain't Half Up, Mum. So, yeah, he was a fixture and probably would have gone on to do more uh, had he not died too soon. One of the main native types was indeed someone who was ethnically native, but to New Zealand, and that is Inyate Wiata. I apologise if I get that wrong. My mara is not so strong. And in the 60s, he was in... The only Sergeant Cork that I dimly remember, as, oh, well, right. okay. as well as the Troubleshooters and the Third Man, and he's having a whale of a time. Yeah, he's got a he's got a good, nice little resume. Sands of the Desert, in Search of the Castaways, Third Man TV series, amongst others. Yeah, yeah, but he's having tremendous fun, isn't he? Oh God, yes! It almost comes across as one of those like end of term treats that you have um, every once in a while. So yeah, people are. I think it's safe to say playing to the gallery in this episode. And, you know, we have Hugh McDermott, who in a previous life was a legitimate movie star, going all the way back to the 30s. But he's in fact Scottish, isn't he? 
He is. Yeah, he's got one of the he's one of those faces and voices where you just think, is he actually American or is he Canadian or is he something else that we've yet to identify? And in fact, if you go back far enough in his CV, you will notice that he appeared in the 1939 film The Saint in London. So he's got a bit of a pedigree. Well, that's what you call deep heritage, isn't it? Uh, appearances in Danger Man, Robin Hood, Sentimental Agent, Man in a Suitcase, Jason King. He surely would have had more, but died at the age of 65 in 1972. No age at all. Yeah. In fact, looking at the cast list, I would say there's probably a medical paper to be written on this episode. Um, the good die young, yes. Yeah. Who else is there? There's um, Jacqueline Ellis, Canadian, last seen in The Ever-Loving Spouse. Elsewhere, she's been in Danger Man, Man of the World, Ghost Squad, quite a few single plays, Crane, five episodes of The Rat Catchers, Softly Softly, Man in a Suitcase and Barlow at Large. She's blonde. I think she's in her 20s. Care to hazard a guess at her height? I'm going to say about five foot five and three quarters. I think you might be in the right ballpark there. Um, Interestingly, she's sort of bad girl in in this episode but we don't have a good girl to counter her really do we no but she's not that bad a girl because i kept thinking she was going to try and pull the old switcheroo but she seems to Mm. be fairly half-hearted in her swindling maybe it's a toxic relationship she's got with her dad well yes that's what it is possibly she's the grown-up amongst (laughs) the two of them yes and as mentioned before jacqueline ellis was one of jeffrey bernard's many wives it's a black and white saint, so I can't quite tell whether Alan Tilvern, as the swarthy Colonel Quintana, I've got it down here, I may be confusing his rank, uh, I can't tell whether he's got a suntan or has been at the burnt cork. In his career, he played a few Latin types uh, with, 100, right, okay. with 138 screen credits, including big movies and nearly everything on 60s and 70s TV but surprisingly, no Avengers points. <gasps> I know. Is, would you say that's a rarity for the time, given the, the huge um, TV industrial juggernaut that the Avengers was, um, almost like the bill of its day, you know, where you would you would have huge numbers of actors used and some being reused as well? Certainly. I think in its entire run, the Avengers may have had something like a thousand actors go through Elstree. Um, But then probably very similar for The Saints. So The Avengers was not an ITC show, though obviously they shared actors. But if you were in one ITC show, the chances are that you would be picked up for another. So It'd be terrible if you were a 60s actor and you were on an ITC death list or blacklist. (laughs) Oh, no. What would you end up being in? Uh, the Foresight Saga. Yeah, oh, right. There you go. Oh, thank goodness there's that. Can supply own beard. <laughs> New Zealander Walter Brown was last seen in the elusive Elshaw, and it's the second of three saints and loads of other stuff. Alex McCrindle, another Scot, uh, a long career, including Star Wars. This is his only saint. Alvaro Fontana as the hapless Julio. Uh, only a handful of credits, including This Saint in Two Danger Mans. Shawzin, who was Paco, was actually French. This is the first of Two Saints. And at 
last, he's someone with an Avengers point. A lot, sadly, it's a lost episode from the studio days. He packed 53 screen credits into his short life, dying too soon at the age of 38. Alan Curtis, last seen in The Death Penalty, I guested in nearly everything, including The Avengers once, on TV with Morecambe and Wise five times, and had a run of 13 episodes of Compact. And then we get into the uncredited basement. Paul Berardi, <laughs> uh, one point and loads of ITC stuff. Uh, 16 Saints, nearly all uncredited. Keith Denny, 12 Saints. Arthur Goodman, again. Ken Lawton, seven saints. Leonard Llewellyn, again one point, 21 saints. Martin Lyder appeared in 19 episodes of The Saint, a host of other shows, and has two Avengers points, even if one of them is fog. <laughs> we will not see its like again. Thankfully. And I don't know whether I'm pronouncing this properly, but there's Frank Singuinol from Trinidad, 93 screen credits and a lot of work on stage. So we salute oh, you all. The Golden Frog was the sort of episode, like you said, it's an end of term episode where you can bring in games. Yes, um, a slightly lighter tone. Um, whilst there is the serious aspect of gun running, and we strongly advise all our listeners never to partake in gun running because it won't end well. There's not a huge amount of threat or menace um, in it. Uh, Simon doesn't seem unduly ruffled by what's going on. No, but his, his next venture into the Caribbean will see him well and truly ruffled. <gasps> but we're coming oh, to that. Yes, and then some. Right, the frightened innkeeper. Ah, Cornwall, what lurks in the tin mines? Smugglers? Spies? Zombies? It could be all of those things and more. It, it could be be and it may well be later on they are using those underground sets again the saint arrives and meets susan neve who's blonde mid-twenties i'd guess about five foot six tall mm, and be, yeah yeah and for once he's not just passing through because she's written to him and possibly included a photograph because he's not only replied but he's come down now why has she written to him, Dave? Well, it appears that her father, played by Michael Gwynn, um, has bought this pub called The Weary Traveller, um, but is it seems to be a little bit unsuccessful. Maybe it's not um, the cornerstone of the community that, that Michael Gwynn expected it um, to be, but um, that's not to say that the pub is empty when they arrive, because there are three other guests... Um, and these are menacingly played by Norman Bird, Percy Herbert, and Howard Marion Crawford. And what we have is they seem to have some kind of stranglehold on Michael Gwynn. They've been there for about, oh, what about six weeks? Um, and we begin to add the clues together. They've been there for six weeks. Um, they seem to be, like I said, have some kind of sway over Michael Gwynn. And they are all ex-Royal Engineers, um, which is is going to be very, very handy because what their plan is um, in the basement of the Weary Traveller uh, is uh, a secret passage.
secret passage which leads to um, a tunnel which they've been excavating. I don't know whether they've done that World War II thing of just like running around and, and dropping sand or dirt out of their trousers and, and spreading it around the countryside. Not quite sure how they managed to get rid of everything, but it appears that a local prison, there is the sinister Alexander Bellamy, who is a villain and who has a crooked lawyer and with the marvellous name of Yesterman, who is organising these three ex-Royal Engineers um, to dig this tunnel and arrange an escape plan. Um, I must admit, when we've looked at, you know, money before in the same very vulgar thing to talk about, I do appreciate that. But with this one, there's quite a chunk of change on the table because Alexander Bellamy is offering £100,000 for this prison break. Isn't that um, each? It is, yeah. So he's been quite successful in his nefarious activities. Yes, yeah. And his crooked lawyer, who, um, in the words of P.G. Woodhouse, would probably be able to hide behind a spiral staircase, is involved in this. And then we get some old favourites turn up. We get people overhearing plots while they're hidden in the cellar. We get one of our old favourites, poisoned whiskey. <gasps> but the saint fortunately spots the poisoned whiskey. Mm, yeah, why ruin a good single malt by doing this? But the great sad loss in this episode for the car fans out there is the Volvo. That was a bit of a shock. Mm. I was. But he had a new one at the end. Well, he did. And because there was reward money and he split the reward money, which was 10%. So he got 75 grand and Susan Neve got 75 grand, some of which would be going on a lawyer to try and keep her dad out of jail. But the saint bought his new Volvo out of that reward money, which either... He wasn't insured, or he didn't put the claim in. I can imagine yeah. the conversation with the loss adjuster. <laughs> what actually happened to your car, Mr Templar? Yeah, it's it's another outing for one of Roger's disguises, again, as Sebastian Toombs, which is a popular... I don't know how many times he uses it, but he does like playing on it. He doesn't um, do the accent yeah, this time, does he? No, he doesn't do the accent. Maybe he doesn't have to, because we're in Cornwall. <laughs> you know, he's just... That's actually, no, I don't have to do... Won't bother with that, this this time again there's one of those scenes in a bar where one of the local thugs in this case Percy Herbert who seems to be the leader of the gang and then a bar room is reduced to matchwood <laughs> in a big brawling fight which Simon seems to take in his stride uh, but yeah the, the idea is that these three ex-engineers are there and um, to execute this big prison escape. Which is gets quite tense actually because the villain who is escaping and has managed to overcome an orderly which I think was played by Terry Mountain who we've mentioned recently. Oh yeah Terry Mountain. And also a prison guard and then goes into the showers, has trouble getting the grate open, and then there's a chase down a waste pipe, and the prison guard crawls after him. And then there's an explosion. I'm not quite sure what happened to that prison guard, because no. you can crawl <laughs> forward in a pipe easily enough, but going backwards is a bit of a job, really, in my experience. Um, I would advise listeners, again, much like the warning we gave moments ago about gun running, to not attempt crawling backwards 
in a tightly fitting sewer pipe. No, it only really works if you're in the Shawshank Redemption. Yes. You don't come up smelling of roses anyway. <laughs> no, they're right, pen and ink. Yeah, one of the tropes, the drugged whiskey, which the saint does spot, he also gets his life saved by Michael Gwynn, who realises or overhears that there's a bomb in the saint's car. And because Mm. there's a chase and then there's an accident, the saint stops his car, he and Susan Neve get out, and then the Volvo blows up. Which was kind of a stroke of luck, really. Mm. It's a good job he hadn't got a car phone and they decided to phone for help. But a big shock there, the loss of, you know, it'd be like losing Steed's Bentley or the return of the Saints Jaguar XJS. Well, yes, Steed's Bentley did meet a fiery end in the new Avengers. Ooh. Well, all you saw was the Bentley mascot, Chard and, and everything. And I think mm. John Alumni gets very sentimental to be fair we haven't actually seen that bentley in color almost as far as i can tell because uh, certainly since the tara king days because they forgot to order it when the first tara king episode and that's why you see steed in a yellow rolls royce and other classic cars oh right thank you as well as a jensen a modern jensen which is just not right at it's all. just wrong it's yeah. just wrong Yes, I hadn't realised that people could write to the saint and he took requests from strangers. Yeah, because we, we know people have his phone number. Um, Philip Latham the other week when he was being chased through the streets by Dudley Sutton phoned him up and said, hey, saint, I'm in a bit of bother. So he doesn't seem to have like a closed, closed shop policy. It's not like an ex-directory number or address where you just go, oh, if only I could get out of the saint. Much like hiring the A-team. Just go, I'm not quite sure. I'm going to maybe an ad in Soldier of Fortune magazine. But yeah, the saint seems to have a very basic marketing ploy of just making his telephone number and address readily available for anyone. Yes, it's probably even got his logo next to it. it? Yeah. Maybe it's the Yellow Pages. Yeah, good branding. And the useful thing is that Susan Lee's character hasn't been entirely helpless. Uh, She does disobey orders, hide in the cellar, where the entrance to the secret tunnels is in fact a wine rack and has levers. And, no. uh, it's very well engineered. I mean, I, I think the British Army taught those guys well. <laughs> yeah, they may be as crooked as a dog's back leg, um, but hey, they know their engineering and mining. They certainly do. Anyway, it all ends in smiles, thankfully. <clears throat> Let's look at who's responsible. Susan Neve. She knows how to wear a frock, 11 episodes of the Foresight Saga, amongst other period dramas, plus UFO, where she probably wore something more futuristic. Mm. Elsewhere, the troubleshooters, Sherlock Holmes, she was last seen in The Saint in The Benevolent Burglary. Oh, right, yes. You yeah. remember that one that you took quite a long time to catch up with? I did, yes. And I put my hand up and say that that was my fault. Ah, The saint is there for all time. You can catch up with it. Michael Gwynn, a bit of a star with 97 screen credits, including Department S, Randall and Hopkirk, Adam Adamant, The Baron, Danger Man, Forty Towers, where he was the bogus aristocrat, if I remember rightly. Career highlights, I think, is being on the wrong end of those very spooky children in Village of the Damned. But more importantly... One Avengers point. Oh, there you go. Percy Herbert, instantly recognisable with 116 screen credits, guested in nearly everything except the Avengers. 
<gasps> he's too busy doing all those other things. Yes, but I think that his contribution to Bridget on the River Kwai deserves a mention because he was given an extra £5 a week by David Lean as an advisor on Japanese prisoner of war camps because he'd been in one for four years. Now, he's, I know we've spoken before of this generation of British actors who'd done their time, you know, not just national service, you know, like they might have done in the 50s, but no, actual time in WWII. And I think maybe that's why the, the bearing that he brings to his military roles, of which there are many, usually opposite Harold Goodwin or Norman Rossington, but he's able to to bring, you know, that, that element to it. Because I knew him as a face and as an actor, and I remember him from Bridge on the River Kwai, because he does that kind of winking at Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness tells him off for doing that. But having read this, you notice that Percy Herbert, he's got real presence on screen. Oh, God, yeah. You know, he's always kind of like draws your attention. He's one of those British character actors, uh, you know, people like Sam Kidd, um, people like Victor Madden, that you kind of welcome as a very reassuring presence. Yeah, I don't know about Victor Madden, but Sam Kidd spent five years in a POW camp. There you go. His biography, For You, The War Is Over, is probably out of print, but they really ought to re-release it because, as was said on the dust jacket, it's the flip side of the Colditz story. This was what the ordinary soldier had to go through, and he was taken prisoner within sight of the White Cliffs of Dover and, I think, was liberated by the Red Army because he'd been in Poland. But as we know, there are a whole host of other people and I think we probably ought to do a separate show about that. Because mm. I knew someone who was in a camp with Peter Butterworth. Oh, right, OK. Well, the camp, Sargon. Oh, right. Still a Luft Three, the Great Escape Camp. Mm. And they got up to some japes. However, I suspect that being in a Japanese prisoner of war camp wasn't all beer and skittles yeah, by it, any... No, that would, that would be a lot harsher. And again... I guess all those um, World War Two dramas, which big screen dramas, which rolled on after 1945, all the way through the 50s, there would be that added element of people who'd, well, you would call it now in training, lived experience. Yeah, yeah. Whether in action or being a prisoner or whatever, that generation is quite astonishing. Howard Marion Crawford... Talking Pictures viewers will be familiar with him as Dr. Watson from the 50s Sherlock Holmes series, which was which made in France. Which is unschooling at the moment, yeah. It, is it? All right. Mm. Bizarrely, it was made in France and wasn't shown in Britain until about the 1990s, but I think it was made for the States. And as the usual case, it's kind of a half-hour show and there's about 39 of them. <laughs> so it's, it was almost like a Walton on Thames sapphire films set up and their outdoor shots apart from some maybe not stock footage but footage of the houses of parliament and westminster bridge would appear to be kind of vague french chateaus and stuff like that which looked fairly similar to victorian gothic country houses i suppose um elsewhere 83 screen credits including interpol calling danger man may gray man in a suitcase all the 60s Fu Manchu movies. Oh, right, yes. And he was the proud possessor of three Avengers points. But amazingly, I mean, for someone who 
didn't seem to age at all. He died at the age of 55. Crikey. He looked old. Oh, you're all right. Yes, because he looked that old in this episode of The Saint. Yeah, yeah. Old uh, before his time. That's right. He certainly could pull off a handlebar moustache. Hopefully no one else tried to pull mm. off his handlebar moustache. <laughs> then there'd be another one of those big pub brawls. Certainly. It, it turned out not to be held on by a spirit gun. Norman Bird, a TV stalwart who also appeared on the big screen at pretty much every ITC show, this is the second of four saints, and he has one invaluable Avengers point. John Gabriel, 148 screen credits, uh, but missed out on the Avengers. But he was in May Gray and nearly every other ITC show going, as did Edward Cast, who has got one Avengers point. Now, in the uncredited bargain basement, it's a bit unfair, because these people... Would they? Do you think they'd eat in a separate canteen? If you were uncredited, I'd like to think it was a big tent that everyone could sit down together with. So you could sit next to Percy Herbert if you were like one of the prison guards, like Tony O'Leary. You know, you wouldn't be forced to. No, sorry, you've got to sit over there. Oi, and you're only allowed one sandwich. I think it would probably depend more on your shooting schedule than. Yes, yeah. No, I think it was a fairly egalitarian, all in it together type of setup at Elstree. I'd like to think so, anyway. There's Roy Beck, two points, 13 Saints, appearances elsewhere. Derek Chafer, two and a half Avengers points, three Saints. The Prisoner, the Baron, Department S and Jason King. Vic Chapman, 12 Saints, three Avengers points and numerous ITC shows. Uh, Terence Mountain, as we've said. Ah, um, such a great name, Terry Mountain. Yeah. Tony O'Leary has three and a half points and six saints. Um, Alan Stewart has just half a point, which means that he was in the new Avengers. Uh, for people who are unfamiliar with the unfamiliar with system. our scoring methodology, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like the Lewis Duckworth method. Yes, yeah, similar to similar to that, which within itself is very complicated. Right. Let me just take a drink before we launch ourselves into the epic, which is Sibau, which went out mm -hmm. yesterday evening on uh, Talking Pictures television. Now, as I explained in our previous podcast, I had to do some research by watching A Danger Man, because according to IMDb, this episode, Sibau, which is from February 1965, is very similar to one of Danger Man, which is parallel lines sometimes meet. And that's from January 1966, different writers, because um, The Danger Man was written by Malcolm Hulk with additional dialogue by Ralph Smart. And the IMDb commentary says it's set in Haiti. It has voodoo. It features dancing and choreography by Bosco Holder, who we see right at the beginning of Sibau in a tinsel jockstrap, I think it's fair to say. Yes. Um, and we'll we'll come a little bit later to his pedigree for that kind of thing. And in fact, family pedigree for that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it also has Christopher Carlos. Um, well, having seen that Danger Man and seen Sibau, it's nothing like that because... Oh, is that is that warning unwarranted? Yes, I th I think IMDb oh. or whoever the reviewer was, I respect their opinion. I just think they're wrong, <laughs> because in Sibau, 
Terry Nation goes the full Jacques Tourneur. Uh, uh, yeah. Now, I would have to say, and I, and I know, Guy, that we have the giant ants yet to come. We have the potential of the Loch Ness Monster yet to come. And, you know, you did mention when we're, you know, we were looking at the inescapable word, uh, the, the science fiction element of a death ray. But I would say if it bears any similarity, this is like the, the saint meets the X-Files because there's no pat explanation for what has gone on. And there are some very strange elements in this story. You know, it's not like a Scooby-Doo one where, you know, hey, wait a minute, it's Mr. Smedley, the hotel owner. Uh, it's it's nothing like that. There are elements and and scenes and scares within this that remain um, unexplained. And, and presumably we just put it down to the belief of voodoo. Yes, I mean, I am not particularly familiar with the intricacies of voodoo apparently as it's it's called there's obviously a lot of dancing hip swinging a lot of drums uh, yes yeah i did expect bongo sound um on the soundtrack but i did not expect them to be quite so early um you're talking about two seconds in you know the the, the title has come up in haiti um and then it instantly cuts to someone playing the bongos Yes, and Bosco Holder, very lithe, very flexible. His glittery tinsel pants left an indelible mark. Only on screen. Maybe that was. Seconds. Maybe they were there to to distract us from his disappearing act, which he pulls in in that opening sequence. Which is quite impressive. And then Simon, in his little opening spiel, says, "Wouldn't that be handy if you were being entertained by a young lady and her husband turns up and you could make him disappear?" Yeah, totes orcs. Yeah. Well, certainly. I think that shows a certain caddishness for Simon. <laughs> yes. Interrupting the uh, domestic bliss of somebody else. According to Simon, when he meets the titular Sibau, played by Jean <laughs> Rowland, she has been expecting him for several days, but he's only just made up his mind to fly from New York. Yeah, again, one of those eerie elements. And, you know, he does say at the beginning after that marvellous dance routine and bongo playing, this is the kind of thing which maybe is designed as, as something for the tourists. And he's sounding a little bit disappointed as if he wants to come across the real deal. And then Sibau does seem to be the real deal. She has a lovely little trick involving a bag of sand in which that's poured onto the table and the sand is then brushed to one side and then mysteriously in glowing letters is Simon Templar's name. How'd she do that? I don't know. I would have looked at the ceiling actually to see if there was a projector. All right, yeah, yes. But then I'm a skeptic and Simon wants to believe and the truth is out there. Yeah, and he's he, finds it genuinely striking, this trick. 
Um, and he tells his two drinking companions about this and they poo-poo the idea and think it's all, oh, wait a minute, it's just a, a little bit of a, a, a touristy trick. But when they go back and they do it with the loud, boorish one in their group, not only does she do the same trick with a little back of sand, but it's his real name that is revealed. It's Krieger's, uh, who's the, the loud, drunken one. It's his real name that is revealed. And also the idea that maybe he's going to meet a sticky end. Oh, dear. Yes, that sticky end is quite complex. But first, an imposing figure walks through the door and everything stops. Yeah, the bongo drummers even stop. Everything stops. And... Sibau has to leave their table and go and talk to this imposing figure who is none other than an extremely well-caffured John Carson. Who's that? Baron Netlord. Netlord? Sort of familiar ring. Isn't he what the newspapers call a political opportunist? Yes, and since the war he's been mixed up in every revolutionary movement in the Caribbean. Yes, and John Carson is channeling the full James Mason. Sibau, I cannot order you not to come here. I can only ask you, but you must believe me, it is for your own good. There's no harm the tourists will pay to see these stupid tricks. But don't you see how you cheapen yourself? Sibau, you are one of the great ones. You have been given powers denied to the rest of the world. To use them on what you call these stupid tricks is an abuse of those powers. Oh, he does. He goes full James Mason. In fact, he does use that at one point when he offers the, the saint a cigar later on. I expected him to go in the voiceover that he used to do for the mild cigar from Benson and Hedges. They did talk about the tobacco, actually, as being a bit yes. milder. I wonder if that was an in-joke. <laughs> it could be. Could be. And, you know, we know that Roger Moore was a big cigar aficionado. And maybe that's how he got hooked onto them. We don't know. The gateway cigar. <laughs> John Carson's character is... Well, we don't quite know who he is. He's been described by Simon Templer as a political opportunist, whatever that means. Mm. I don't know. It's something you put on your passport, I suppose. <laughs> but anyway, he talks to Sabau and asks her to give up her cabaret act and stick to the true path of voodoo. And then, having established that her brother will walk her home, he signals, apparently, to the brother to tamper with the brakes on Krieger's car. Yeah, not so supernatural now, is it, Guy? No, like, certainly not. But there are a certain set of spooky coincidences because the brother is walking Sabal home. Mm. Krieger gets into his car, suddenly doesn't appear as drunk as he was making out to be, drives off down those country roads, which, you know, Dave, <laughs> those country roads look about as tropical as that river in the Golden Frog. <laughs> we have to remember that the distance shots, the location shots, sometimes may not mesh with the flora and fauna that we may expect from the Caribbean. But you will notice what the production design crew do is when it's studio more than makes up for it for the number of palm trees and ferns yes and the thing that strikes me about that is that it's always shot from above the waist 
So presumably yes. you don't see the pots. <laughs> oh, yes. It's a good thing. And then we'll come to those palm trees or palm bushes again because driving back, Krieger loses control of the car, manages to clip Sibau and her brother, her brother more severely, mm. before running into a tree. Miraculously, Krieger survives. Sibau gets a nasty cut on her thigh, as it turns out, which means that you get to see Jean Rowland's thigh quite a lot. But the brother is meant to have a broken back. So Simon takes Sibau to the local European doctor, who then explains that she's perfectly fine and would have been without his help. And these people who uh, follow Voodoo are kind of much better off than anything that he can do. Yeah, they're sort of tolerant of him, aren't they? That's um, right. There's sort of almost humour in it. Quite. And uh, Simon Templer can't really understand why she's not upset that her brother's been killed. That is because he's not dead. Now, come on, Doctor. Sure, the heart has ceased to beat, respiration has stopped. Every known medical test would confirm that life has gone from the body. But you'd never convince a bow of that. This is Haiti, Mr. Templer. Those who die violently avenge themselves. This is the land of the undead. The living dead, if you like. The zombie. So there you go. That is basically the whole image of Haiti and voodoo distilled into quite a short scene. So Sibau's leg is healing marvellously she shows it off to simon later and there is no scar and then there's a funeral service going on with lots of drums and yes there would appear to be a spirit of the undead walking through those potted palms to the hotel to wreak its revenge yeah because what we're seeing on the screen is that body disappearing Mm. There is an eerie glow, there's a sinister mist, and Bosco Holder appears to have gone into some kind of trance, and maybe he is channeling this spirit, but certainly something turns up in Krieger's room, and it's all a little bit too much for Mr. Krieger, and he dies horribly. Mm. He kind of falls backwards, appears to break his back, mm. and then the saint and the hotel owner discover the body, the doors, which have blown open, appear to have locked themselves again. Oh, that happened. And the hotel owner goes to call the police. I kind of wonder whether it's the same police officer who is in danger, man. Anyway, while he's doing that, the saint very carefully and neatly searches the room. Now, I think he's done it before. Previously, you have said, that, what is he looking for? Yeah, what's he looking for? He's got this idea that that Krieger isn't really Krieger. And as he discovers in Mr. Krieger's suitcase, an ID card from a national security agency of America. Um, and indeed, the fact that his name was David Grant. And that was the name that Sabau revealed amongst the sand when was saying that Krieger is not his real name. So now the saint begins to do what he does best, doing a little bit of investigation, phones up the operator and asks to place an overseas call to the Pentagon for the vigilant and diligent and perhaps pedantic amongst you. You will know that the stock footage then revealed is not of the Pentagon, 
but the Capitol building in Washington. But wherever it is, we know that on the other end of the phone is that reliable American character actor, Bruce Bower, who is able to fill in the saint a little bit. And then the saint gets, um, I suppose the best way to describe it, he gets a field promotion, doesn't he? Well, yes. Uh, I think I ought to, because Maple Leaf supporters will be slightly disturbed that you describe Bruce Bower as American character actor. He's a Canadian. Oh, no. Oh, no. We'll, have to, we'll have to reshoot that scene again. <laughs> oh, what a terrible error I've made. No, oh, no. I, I think we've, we've corrected the record. Bruce Bower is Canadian and we've seen him before and we'll see him again. And like all Canadians, British television would be nowhere without them. <laughs> I think that's enough of an apology, isn't it? That's a, Send yeah. something to the embassy. <laughs> yeah. Flowers. <laughs> yeah. But Bruce Bower in Washington says he'll send a man straight down. Now, you know, Dave, when we see a Pan-American flight land mm. and disembark on the Saint, does anything seem familiar about it? <laughs> um, is it possibly just to remind us the same Pan Am flight that we saw only a couple of weeks ago? in the golden frog um, because providing it's arriving at a, a warm airport it's it's going to look the same it is and in fact remarkably the passengers are wearing exactly the same clothes i must admit one of those favorite tropes in this as well as uh, um, rog having his um his safari suit which gets a nice airing is those shirts which just have a big sweaty stain in the middle of the back <laughs> yeah Yes, the hotel owner had a particularly sweaty shirt, didn't he? Yeah, the doctor. On the safari suit point, it's actually presages Roger's 70s wardrobe much more mm. than it did in, say, the sign of the claw, where he was looking very suave. It was tailored. He actually mm -hmm. had it belted up and he was wearing a scarf. Here, it's rather baggy and he doesn't appear to be wearing a vest underneath it. No. Um, Is he mad? So, yeah, so it definitely looks forward about another 10, 12 years to his Bond incarnations. Well, I suppose that's that's the lovely thing on this, is that it, there's lots of echoes in this of his first Bond outing, Live and Let Die. Yeah, there's a, sort of pre-echoes. I don't know if anyone on the production side was um, connected to it. Anyway, as you say... The American guy turns up, and I think that's the last we see of him, because he knows Haiti is a dangerous place, and he's not going anywhere. He's not leaving his hotel room. So he asks Simon to take over off the books. Mr. Templer, what I'm about to ask you is quite unofficial. But you would like me to take up where Grant left off. Hamilton wasn't exaggerating when he told me about you. You realize you'd be on your own. If you ran into any trouble, there's no use coming to us for help. We'd deny even knowing you. Believe me, if I shop for help, I need someone a lot closer than Washington. You'll do it? You'll have a tougher job trying to keep me away from it. Thank you. Yeah. Which is kind of similar to that scene in The Inescapable Word, where the chief constable invites Simon along to investigate the isolated Scottish 
research base yeah it's kind of like a very free easy association there doesn't seem to be any like dbs checking or or safeguarding concerns or anything like no need for references uh it's just no you're in yeah but if you get caught you're on your own uh which i think is actually the somerset mourn line in the asherton stories all right okay yeah if you do well, you won't get any thanks. And if you run into trouble, you won't get any help. <laughs> uh, and I think that is probably the moral for most Western intelligence agencies. Mm. Yes, we've got that, which echoes um, the inescapable word. But then we have a very similar scene echoed almost immediately when the American agent explains Net Lord's travel history. He was with Castor in Cuba. He was in British Guiana when the trouble started there, and now he's here. And there are incidents between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Yeah, he does seem to have been an international traveler um, to hotbed places. Not unlike Dr. Julius. Yeah. Mm. So... um, I mean, the, the, the only significant differences we, we seem to notice, um, and again, this is one of those things which kind of up plays the, the supernatural elements of, of this episode, um, is that when John Carson, who, who wants to, to gain total voodoo power, appears to be flame-proof. That's right. I mean, not only does he hold his hand in front of Simon's cigarette lighter, but he gets his armpit hair singed mm. at the initiation ceremony. Yeah, um, well, I'm quite impressed by. He seems, to, I bet he's been working out, you know, because um, it's not the first time he's appeared topless in The Saint. I mean, he was covered in heavy makeup in The Arrow of God yeah. with a turban. But. He's stripped down to his trousers and he's being purified with um, a flaming torch all up and down his arms and doesn't flinch at all. I have to bother him. No, I have to say that this is John Carson's episode, really. He's having a whale of a time. Uh, he is. He's, um, like I said, there's this kind of like supernatural aspect to the villainy that he's, you know, that he's presenting. Like I said, any who goes into a bar and everything stops because they have walked into a bar you know he's kind of having a little bit of fun yes and he's suave he reminds me of another character involving zombies who was a bit james mason like but that, that was set in cornwall what am i thinking of dave um i don't know maybe that is hey wait a minute it's not <laughs> plague of the zombies is it no, it's a. It was um, the soundtrack was recovered for radio. Oh right! Oh, you must be referring to the hit Scarefest, Darius Dark, Supernatural Detective. Indeed, and um, a very similar sort of thing because we hadn't got the budget uh, to go further than Cornwall. <laughs> but um, um, but yeah, I, I mean John Carson again. Uh, um, only a couple of years, actually, barely a year after this episode, would again be up to his neck in all kinds of Caribbean shenanigans in Plague of the Zombies. Yes, set in Cornwall. 
<laughs> remote to yes. nine. Yes. A um, weary traveller. <laughs> yes, to get to the um, purification ceremony, he has to have disposed of Simon Templar. And, of course, mm -hmm. Simon has been invited or challenged to go up and have dinner with him and accepts... Yes. I've started to warm up for the ceremony. Let me get you a drink. Whiskey? Fine. After the ceremony, there'll be a Brulitzin. Oh, that's the big voodoo celebration, isn't it? Dancing, invocations, sacrifices. Your studies have taught you a good deal in such a short time. All I've really learned is that there's a great deal more to voodoo than I ever imagined. I think I underestimated you. You really are ready to seek for the truth, aren't you? Yes. Especially about you. You see, I don't believe you've gone so deeply into this voodoo business just for your own personal spiritual satisfaction. Don't stop. You want power. Or money, or both. Voodoo would give you those things. You'd corrupt a religion into a political machine. Your ruthlessness, combined with the ability to raise the dead and the other mysteries of voodoo, would make you the most powerful man in the Caribbean. Not just the Caribbean. South America. Africa. For a thousand years, they have been searching for a leader to take them to their rightful place in the world. And you think you're that man? Yes. Tonight, I complete the most difficult and the last part. After that, nothing can stop me, especially not you, Mr. Templar. Fortunately, Sibau has sent him what turns out to be a bulletproof medallion. Yes, yes, because um, uh, just to make sure that he's doing a decent job, John Carson poisons him or certainly gives him some, some powerful muscle relaxant or sleeping draft. Uh, so Simon has to fight that off and then just for good measure because um, maybe he's thinking this sleeping draft thing isn't going to work out. He fires a gun at him as well. Yeah, and uh, so John Carson thinks that he's killed the saint. <laughs> the saint's record of detecting drugged alcohol is not particularly strong. Um, much the same word. Maybe it's only in whiskey, because it's in, in, in this case the wine's poisoned, isn't it? Not a whiskey. I think we didn't detect it in the hot chocolate in the Prince of mm. or King of Thieves or whatever it was called. Maybe maybe it is just whiskey that he can he can sniff it out in. It could be because he knows his malts, so he probably would notice that um, slightly odd metallic phenolic smell was not a distillery he was familiar with. <laughs> Anyway, he and um, Sibau have to struggle through the potted palms. She goes ahead. There's much argument about whether John Carson's character ought to be initiated into all the secrets of voodoo. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then the saint turns up and they have to have a challenge, which is, I must admit, a bit like that scene in Flash Gordon where well, they have to stick their hand into something which might bite. Oh, right, yes. There's a tree stump that John Osborne tells them to put their hands in. That's John Osborne, isn't it? Yes, Timothy Dalton. John Osborne is the real priest, um, and the unfortunate victim of that nasty thing, the first one, is um, Blue Peter's own Peter Duncan. <laughs> right. Um, well, that's a claim to fame. 
So the truth will out and apparently John Carson's been bitten by a snake and tries to threaten Sibau with, I don't know whether it's a Gurkha's cookery or it's a short machete, but anyway, she forces his hand by sheer power of will so that Simon can pull her away uh, and then John Carson's character expires. But then the fang marks disappear. Yeah, because the basket is revealed not to contain a mass of slithering asps, but rather just some old rope. And I think old rope is probably... <laughs> so there's there's loads of supernatural elements in here, like we said at the beginning, that do not have a pat explanation, do not have a Scooby-Doo finale. It's, well, crikey, we're just going to have to accept that maybe all these kinds of voodoo shenanigans um, really do get along and it's down to us to perhaps keep our distance and be respectful of it. I think so, yes. Mm. Given all the tropes and cliches that there are about it, I think there was a certain sympathy towards the belief system. Um, but it did also reinforce a lot of those tropes and cliches as well. Mm. I can't remember if there's more than one Danger Man's uh, set in Haiti. Uh, there's obviously a Champions. Actually, yes. that's not real voodoo because that's Donald Sutherland using electronics to hypnotise people, isn't it? Yes. Um, so it, it, I mean, it's a, it's a good element, you know, it's an always, it is, you know, it's a good element to have in it. You know, it still sorts of resonates. There's the, is it Wade Davis, the anthropologist in the film, The Serpent and the Rainbow, um, looking into the religious aspects. And then I suppose an offshoot would be, is it Santeria, uh, which is used in the John Schlesinger film, The Believers. Oh, right. Yes. And another instance of where voodoo is used as a plot element is in an episode of the troubleshooters where Branstead oh, and various people are trying to negotiate something in haiti and have to negotiate with uh the local tonton Makout, i think or whatever papa doc's <laughs> secret police were a fairly unsavory bunch and you know, Sadly, Haiti is very much a troubled half an island. But let's examine who was in it. As you say, John Carson was going to shortly appear in Plague of the Zombies. He was born in Colombo, Sri Lanka. He has three and a half Avengers points, two Magres, 15 episodes of the Troubleshooters, plus Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. Oh, right, yes, yeah. Um... Jean Roland, or Jeanne Roland, uh, was born in Rangoon. And so I think she has a Burmese mother, possibly. Um, and if you noticed, there were, it was a very cosmopolitan mix of people at the funeral service. Yes, there did seem to um, be some Far Eastern people there um, as well. So yes, a big, big catchment area. That's right. Well, the Caribbean is very much a crossroads. So Gene Rowland, one Avengers point, man in a suitcase, the Baron, danger man, last seen in The Good Medicine, Into the Saint. 
Um, Jerry Stovin, Canadian, no points, but nearly everything else. Danger Man, Ghost Squad, Maybray. <laughs> Kevin Story was born in Uttar Pradesh. He has 198 credits, one and a half points, and nearly everything right up to the Elaine Mysteries in the 1990s. Right. Now, Christopher Carlos was from Dallas. His shows ranging from The Third Man, Several Danger Mans, He's back in Another Colour Saint, four episodes of The Troubleshooters, uh, and in the 1990s, 13 episodes of Wishbone, which was an American's children's series about a dog that imagines himself as various literary characters and his similar adventures. That sounds like a canine version of Walter Mitty to me. Yeah, kind of like pitched on acid or what. <laughs> um, but they made a few of them, so I presume it was a success. Uh, Nick Zaran... From Kingstown, St. Vincent and the Grenadines pops up in various ITC series, as well as Doctor Who, The Troubleshooters and Space 1999. Nicholas Stewart, another Canadian, on his final saint, last seen in the sporting chance. Canadian Bruce Boer. Yay! Yes, definitely Canadian Bruce Boer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, OK. We've seen him before, and I neglected to mention his appearance in the New Avengers, which brings him up to a total of one and a half points. Uh, this is the second of Three Saints. Canadian John McLaren, one point, Three Saints, Human Jungle. Uh, Bosco Holder from Trinidad, his only saint, but he was a prolific painter, especially of the people of the Caribbean, and exhibited work at a number of galleries throughout his life. And a series of postage stamps was issued in Trinidad and Tobago, in 2004 featuring his work he was the older brother of dancer choreographer and actor jeffrey holder who has quite a few credits in the states and is also in live and let die and did the choreography for that there you go they're obviously a very talented family in the uncredited department <laughs> the separate eating area <laughs> the downstairs basement <laughs> Jack Armstrong, two and a half points, two saints, 131 credits in all. Paul Berardi, again, 16 episodes of The Saint, one point. Eileen Harvey, three saints in several ITC series. And Alicia St. Ledger, born in Derby. She's been in The Saint before, as have Arthur Goodman and inevitably Austin Cooper. Yes, yes, thank you very much. Um, a nice little quick... Um, supporting story here because this um, episode which is very exciting like I said plays like an X-Files one um, is directed by Peter Yates who a few years after this would be directing the likes of Robbery and Bullet but I think I might have mentioned that our film school chum Eddie Marshall was up the other week and he was directing episodes of Emmerdale and I had him stopping with me for a few days and um, he was saying that his connection to PT8 is when Eddie lived on the Isle of Dogs and ordered a cross trainer to be delivered to his house. And the bloke turned up with a box and helped him unpack it. And he was talking to Eddie, finding out what he what he did. And Eddie said, Oh, I'm I'm a TV and film director. And he said, Oh, I've just I've just dropped off um, a cross trainer to another one of your mates. And he just delivered a cross trainer to PT8. There you go. Uh, nice to see that Peter Yates is keeping in shape. <laughs> um, at the time, yes. And Eddie as well, of course. Oh, yes. Well, I'm glad he was in fine fettle. So much so, because um, he 
he had to watch sort of like the rough edits whilst he was here. And I haven't seen an episode of Emmerdale for ages. And so we played it off his laptop and we played it through my big TV. Um, and it's really good. He did, you know, the first episode he does, um, it's a very rarity for, for TV soaps. It's just one scene you know, for about 12 minutes. Right, so it's almost it's, like theatre. Yeah, so the producers have been sufficiently impressed and are asking him back to do more. Terrific. Well, in the tradition of Peter Yates, I hope that he gets to direct a few car chases. Oh, yes, yes. He's come a long way since doing Cave Girl. <laughs> yeah, but that was in South Africa, wasn't it? That was... Yes, yes. So, yeah, it's it's the light. That's what it is. It's the light. <laughs> Well, believe it or not, we're up to date with our saint Done. explorations. Done. Um, so let's just look forward to the next one. Uh, all right. Yes. Now, I I don't know. I know you you were really looking forward to Sibau. So I'm not sure whether um, the next one may live up to its title. It's called The Prime of the Century, in which a chemist who works at a research lab, oh, we know that's going to be evil, um, is abducted and a few hours earlier, Teal intercepts one of the group and asks Simon if he'd be willing to work undercover. Again, kind of like that ad hoc hiring and firing, kind of like Simon must be on like a zero hours contract with the Met. But we have some lovely old familiar faces to look forward to in this. We have Andre Morel, William Lucas, Sarah Lawson, Peter Jeffrey, uh, and Carol Cleveland, and the lovely Alexandra Bastida. Oh, fantastic. I was actually at an event with both Carol Cleveland and Alexander Bastido. <gasps> unexpectedly. Can such a thing happen? Can such a thing have occurred? Yes, because it was the Avengers 50th anniversary celebration in Chichester. Oh, <laughs> go, go. So, um, yes, you've, it's it's a bit like going to Wembley and um, saying <laughs> that you've seen royalty or various england players or something like that mm. it, because i was definitely in the cheap seats is that where you got me my lovely um signed document from um brian clemens yes i said oh david is 50 and he's a writer <laughs> there you go thank you very much and i remember you sent me a photograph of steed's hat yes a light gray bowler that's right it was in a glass case very much like a religious relic <laughs> <laughs> and and was treated as such in fact it was really like going on pilgrimage because there were people there there was one young lady was wearing a backless shirt so she could show off her diana rig tattoo there's dedication for you yeah that's a level of commitment that i wasn't quite prepared to <laughs> exceed to so, well, it's good to hear Eddie's uh, well. Mm -hmm. uh, just once again, if he wants to tune in and if anyone else wants to uh, tune in. I have in. sent him a link. I have sent him a link today. Uh, bravo. Yes, it will be appearing shortly on Soundstage North's SoundCloud channel. And uh, people can pick it up from there. And I have to go away and publish the one that we did yesterday and uh, edit the one that we've just done now. Just done now. Edit as we speak. Believe now, it or not, do it. I know that. Out. I know this will shock people, but actually, there is some post-production involved. Hey, there you go. I believe it. I've seen it happen. Right. Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, this has been Rose Tinted Black and White Television, the review show, the Bumper Bank Holiday, May the eighth edition.
I'm Guy Morgan. My co-host has been David Newell. Bye. We will be back for more nonsense as soon as we can get round to it. And because the security services aren't telling us not to.